Hello, I'm Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. This is the podcast where we look at everything to do with technology and how it impacts our brains, our psychology and our society. So from our chat with the Vice President of McAfee, Candice Worley, on one of our earlier episodes to even our most recent episode discussing AI automation, we talk a lot about AI, which is understandable considering it's very prevalent in our lives. However, so far on the show, we have neglected to discuss quite possibly the most important issue surrounding AI, ethics. Fortunately, you've tuned into the right show because today we'll be discussing just that with a very intellectual man who teaches at a school you've definitely heard of. My guest today is a professor from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, who is teaching a new course at the legendary institute titled Safeguarding Our Humanity in the Age of AI, Professor Bernard Trout. And for our special feature, we have Tech This Out. This is where we look at predictions from the past to either laugh at how hilariously inaccurate they were, or kind of to be amazed at how incredibly accurate they are. And on today's episode, we're looking at one of my favorite philosophers of all time, Alan Watts, and his incredibly accurate predictions of what we can expect from technology in the future. Now remember, these predictions were from before his death in 1973 and they are still very, very applicable today. So we're going to check that out before I meet with you. Check this out. So if you don't know who Alan Watts is, he's a British philosopher who interpreted and generally made popular Eastern philosophy to a Western audience. So nowadays we talk about meditation or spiritualism and lots of aspects of Eastern culture, which 50 years ago would be somewhat unheard of. So Alan Watts was generally one of the first people to really make this popular and bring this from an academic standpoint into our Western world. So I'm going to play you these clips. And following each of these clips, I'm going to play you an example from the past couple of years which have highlighted just how accurate these predictions are. Now, bear in mind, Alan Watts died in 1973. I can't be certain of when these predictions were made exactly. However, we can be sure that it was before his death, obviously. So take a listen to these, and I hope you enjoy. The computer into which data can be fed from the files of the insurance companies, the Internal Revenue Service, the police, the credit agencies, everything, so that in a matter of seconds, when an individual is identified, an enormous amount of information about him can be instantly known. This is one of the largest data breaches in history. It happened at Equifax, the company that tracks all your credit cards and mortgages to determine your credit score. Half of all Americans potentially exposed their highly sensitive personal information now in the hands of hackers. There's a little known service from Amazon. It's suddenly in a great big spotlight. Amazon recognition. What is it? A facial recognition tool that Amazon says can scan in real time. Company says the tool can determine a person's age, gender, mood, even if their identity, if they're in their database. Let's suppose, too, that we begin increasingly to be able to manufacture the parts of the human body in very perfect kinds of plastic. So that when your heart goes wrong or your kidneys go wrong, 
the surgeon will simply replace them with a plastic reproduction. Tonight's Health Watch, a little beyond incredible. Potential breakthrough in making organs in a lab. Israeli researchers have printed a 3D heart, complete with muscle and blood vessels. And uh, perhaps they'll never be able to reproduce in plastic the brain, but they can at least put in there a radio device which will connect with a computer uh, system of some kind, which will do the same job. purpose of Neuralink is to create a high bandwidth interface to the brain such that we can be symbiotic with AI. You will, of course, be able to see solid three-dimensional images in color projected in a certain area, and you can walk around it. I haven't discovered yet whether you can kiss it. <laughs> Tupac Shakur, the hip-hop legend, appeared, literally appeared on stage last night performing his greatest hits thanks to hologram, te hologram technology. Let's start off the show. If you could introduce yourself and just give our listeners a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, and the interesting course that you're going to be, uh, I suppose, blessing your students with coming up in October. Absolutely. Uh, so I am a professor of chemical engineering uh, here at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I've um, I do research and also teaching in chemical engineering. My research is on pharmaceuticals, including applications of artificial intelligence tools towards designing better pharmaceutical products, also processes, pharmaceutical manufacturing processes. Um, but somewhat related to that, ever since I joined the faculty here at MIT in 1998, I've been very much interested in the social consequences of engineering, society, engineering, and ethics. And many years ago, I began a course here on ethics for engineers uh, with colleagues uh, who I've brought to MIT as lecturers uh, who have PhDs in philosophy and, and whatnot. I don't have any formal degrees in ethics or philosophy, uh, just in engineering. And I've been teaching that for a number of years. And uh, we've incorporated uh, artificial intelligence and computer aspects into the course. Um, but then recently, uh, because it's become more and more important, uh, we've set up an AI version of the course, or maybe I should say more broadly, computer science AI version of the course. And specifically, what I'm going to teach in October, to circle back, Sam, to that specific question, is course for professionals. It's a short course uh, with a colleague in the computer science department, um, professors Stephanie Yajelka, and uh, we're going to teach a two-day professional course to kind of expand what we've been doing for MIT students to professionals um, kind of worldwide. Nice. I mean, like, as soon as I heard the course, I was sold. I wanted to have you on here because I think it's something that's just incredible. It seems like Everyone's talking about AI, and yeah, for, for a variety of reasons, it seems like it's going to impact our lives in many ways. The last podcast I hosted was about AI and UBI and about how it's going to impact our workforce and what our world might look like when um, AI does everything and we all live off UBI if that ever becomes a, a reality. But yours, I think, is one of the most interesting because 
it's the most vital part of AI to understand is the ethics of it. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that this is something what you're exploring or what you're looking to explore and what you're talking about is perhaps the most pressing part of AI and what we're going to face. I did see um, in your course, uh, the description states that um, this course takes on an existential threat of AI by exploring what is most important about human life. This means redirecting our thinking from what is merely advantageous to what is genuinely good, from a blind belief in efficiency to considered understanding what is best in human life. How do you draw the line between optimal efficiency and what is best for human life? Well, in a certain sense, um, they're actually uh, opposed to each other. So tend to think of efficiency as good, especially in my field, engineering really focuses on efficiency. Um, but do we really want optimal efficiency? I mean, clearly, if we're sitting in traffic in our, our vehicles being frustrated because things aren't moving quickly, we'd like it to be more efficient. Um, but is but do we want everything to be more efficient? I mean, let, let's go to the extremes. And, and, it's, and it's very kind of you to um, to say such nice things about our course. And along those lines, and, and thanks for reading that quote, because w what I found, as I said, we've been teaching with colleagues here uh, ethics for engineers for some time, and it's been pretty broad. And what's been so fascinating about incorporating AI and, and really having, of course, focusing on the ethics of AI is that I found that AI gets down to the root the foundations of what it means to be human just directly. And so, so circling back then to the question of optimal efficiency, we all have lots of emails in our inboxes and all kinds of things, spend hours and hours a day on our computer. What if we could make it responses more efficient um, and you know, half the amount of time spent responding? Is that actually a good thing? Well, first of all, shouldn't we be thoughtful about our responses? I mean, we want to respond to friends, colleagues, as friends and colleagues, not just in an automated fashion like a machine would respond. And then let's go a step further. What if it would be more efficient if we were somehow melded to our computers? You know, our brain was wired and this, this has been, these ideas have been around for, for decades, longer even. Um, it's, but does that really help us in the end? It may make us more efficient uh, in performing computer optimizations. But is that going to make us better people? And, and is that, like, what, what does it mean to be human? Um, start to talk about that even more. But that, that's at least an initial answer to this question which is really a broad question you asked no definitely um and it really resonates with me I, uh one thing that my previous guest uh peter scott said who's an ex-nasa engineer who was talking about ai he said that one of his colleagues one of the reasons why he he enjoys studying ai is because the more he studies ai the more he understands about himself and the uh, human species which was quite uh which took me by surprise because it's not something that i necessarily would have of um associated with the studying of AI. But I also understand what you, it resonates with me on a personal level when you talk about finding that line between um, efficiency and what's best for human life, because I consider myself someone that's, 
a fairly energetic person. I'm quite industrious, so I'm constantly running around, constantly exercising, constantly working, constantly doing this and like striving towards goals and striving to, to achieve things. I'm also very conscious of the fact that it sounds cheesy, but there's that quote where it says it's about the, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. And I'm so focused on the destination all the time that I often forget like it's the process of doing it, which should be an enjoyable part. So I, I do understand like finding that balance to some extent is a difficult one. Thanks, Sam. That's, I think that's well stated. And I think that that gets to it and we, that gets to the point and we can go a step further. Well, let me actually just say one thing about what you said, because I think that, I mean, another way of saying it is we want to be happy. We want to be happy in what we're doing. Well, happiness is a goal in a sense, but it's, but it's also a state. And so happiness doesn't necessarily correspond to efficiency. And, and then even a step further, we can think, well, what, what is most important in life? And, you know, we, we think about this perhaps from time to time, maybe some people more or less, but certainly things like friendship, love, these kind of things are essential, we would think, to our happiness. And none of these things have to do with efficiency, right? Friendship is not about efficiency. It's about something beyond that. It's about shared happiness. It's not efficiency. No, but it's what drives us. It's almost like our fuel, our energy to to drive us to continue being. And then all the trying to strive to be efficient, I suppose, is in between all those sorts of things to, to allow us, I suppose... Uh, it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to put word, put into words. I suppose it's something uniquely human. Well, there there's a tension. So I mean, that's part of human life. This kind of tension, but it, it is difficult because there's a tension, and exploring that tension is part of what's uh, you know I think what these, the ethics of engineering and and the ethics of AI or computer science specifically leads us to. And I, I, I was intrigued at your comment about your previous guest. I, I didn't hear that podcast, but um, and you were surprised and I was kind of surprised also. And I wonder if he meant something like what I said towards the beginning, which is that I, I found that trying to address ethical questions of artificial intelligence really leads us very quickly to foundational questions about what it means to be human. And I don't know if you had the same thought. Yeah, actually you saying that brought that to mind. That was, uh, that's what triggered that thought. And that's why I was like, wow, this is shockingly similar. But um, again, on the, on the point of like talking about being human, I guess, I actually came across a quote which from of Francis Bacon, which you drew attention to stating, while the scientific enterprise will yield great benefits to humanity, it possesses a profound propensity to dehumanize us. In what way do you believe AI has the uh, potential uh, to dehumanize us? Right, and and just to be clear, that was that was my comment on on the Bacon quote. But um, all right, that was your comment, or yes. that wasn't Francis? No, Bacon. no, that, that wasn't Bacon. He, he's, but, <laughs> my apologies. He, no, no, that's that's good. Um, well, because, and, and, and I think we see this today, um, we see this in, in schools and young people, MIT, for example, where I teach, but, but it's really across the world. I think we, we are very easily distracted. Um, I mean, we all read maybe one, 
weekly about uh, kids being addicted to computer programs, which is sort of the ultimate, or computer games, sorry, which is sort of the ultimate in distraction. Um, and, and then there's a whole range of that. But it's, it's really a distraction. It can help us, but it can also prevent us, from, and it does prevent us from thinking about and exploring exactly the kind of questions uh, that, that we've been discussing here, this podcast, what it means to be human. And so in a certain sense, by distracting us from addressing these important and fundamental questions, in doing that itself, it tends to dehumanize us. We have to be careful. And we see this in the universities. The amount of time students spend thinking about these important questions is just dissipating. It's almost uh, becoming infinitesimally small. That's, uh, I think, one aspect of it. But another aspect, too, is that um, something you alluded to, what happens when these computers essentially make decisions for us? Um, and I think that that was probably a, a subject that you wanted to cover, too. But I don't want to segue too too quickly. But but that's another point, too. We speed our own autonomy, uh, essentially, to machines, to uh, mathematical formulation that are processed at extraordinarily high speed. So that's another that's another aspect. No, definitely. That's that is something like you kind of segued on something that I did want to touch on. And uh, we've already seen actually play out already. Um, it's like as AI does take over a number of responsibilities, what will go or who will be responsible or what will be will happen to accountability if there is an error? Like um, I, I wanted to draw upon like a, an example of if, for example, AI was conducting surgery and something goes wrong, who's accountable then? Or as in the case that we've already seen, if an autonomous vehicle runs someone over who is accountable. What do you think will happen to accountability as we progress into a future where AI is, is responsible for an increasing number of roles? Yeah, so I, I actually, and, and I'm certainly not a legal expert or, or anything like that, um, so there, perhaps there needs to be some legal reform. I'm, I'm sure there must be or legal changes in light of autonomous machines that that do these sort of things, surgery and, and automobiles. But I would think that, at least broadly speaking, um, there would be the same sort of liability as, as anything else, as these non-AI machines. Um, you know, product liability, if a machine, I don't know, a lawnmower, for example, is dangerous and it injures the person using it, then I would think typically the company would be responsible. And these machines will be made by companies. So I would think you know, there, there probably has to be changes to tort law and whatnot. But but that would be my thought. Is there something kind of, I don't know, broader or something different than that you're seeing here that from other machines and other other approaches to liability? No, it's just it's something that, that comes up a lot or I see a lot. As far as I'm aware, someone was hurt or even killed by an autonomous vehicle i think it was when it was being tested in arizona and i'm not actually sure of the outcome of that uh, case but i think it's something that i've been contemplating more and more as the idea of truckers become automated i can imagine when that happens there'll be the potential for far more damage than just if a car malfunctions right so think about it this way likely these machines will make fewer mistakes than humans that i do not find hard to believe <laughs> right. so in the us there's something like 30,000 i mean i've read different statistics but 30,000 deaths a year on the highway 
which is maybe not large as a percentage, but it still seems to be a strikingly large number. Certainly scary, yeah. Well, yes, I, I don't know what that, what that can, no one can know exactly what that can be reduced to, but one would think that with autonomous vehicles, once they work and have been established, that that number could go down markedly. But you raise another question, and this is the brilliance, I think, of the subject and your choice of the subject, because it really gets down to what's fundamental. Let's remember, these machines are sort of sandwiched in the middle between human beings on either side. So human being programs them, yes, may not know exactly the consequence of that programming because of the highly nonlinear aspects. AI is just a highly complicated nonlinear mathematical formulation. And so but someone programs that. And you may not know exactly the consequences from the program, but at least you, a human being has made choices that go into it. And then there's, on the other side, there's a human being who's affected by it hopefully mainly positively. But so the machines are really in the middle. They can process incredibly quickly, much more quickly than a human brain can. I mean, vastly more quickly. But they're not making decisions per se like human beings. They can start on one side and they're on the other side of it. These are just in the middle. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that the government is doing enough to regulate AI to ensure ethical outcomes? Or do you think that's even possible for the government to monitor AI in this kind of paradigm or that kind of area ethically? So I, I'm not in government and I don't know all that government does. So I can, I can speak to that on a high level. Well, one thing that we expect government to do generally is to you know, defend our borders, defend the citizens who are part of the country. And I think that AI and... Um, you know, weaponry related to AI is extremely important. I know the government is doing a lot in that regard. Hopefully they're doing enough. But this includes uh, attacks of computer systems, on one hand, all the way to you know, AI weaponry specifically. As time goes on, you know, weapons become more sophisticated and must be countered with other sophisticated weapons. So I know that the government is Whichever government that might be, but governments are, are working on that. U.S. Definitely, and I, I do hope they're doing enough. But your question, I think, is broader than that. I think that, the let's say, the regulatory framework is yet to be worked out, at least from my, what I've heard. I speak just as a citizen. I'm not involved in government, per se. And I, and I think it's, I think your question is, is excellent. And it's really unclear what role or to what extent uh, of a, a role government should play in regulation, even what it would mean. You know, what kind of regulations would you want to have? And how can you determine whether those regulations are being followed and are to peer inside of a, of a machine, perhaps? Definitely. I, it's interesting you mentioned about the, the weaponization of um, AI. Because one thing that really resonated with me when, um, I'm not sure if you heard this, but Elon Musk, he said that what he predicts will happen is that AI will be weaponized and it will be used by an army or military. And then something devastating will happen where there will be some kind of horrific event or horrific use of it. And there'll be a global international outcry. And then following that, there will be a committee appointed to rectifying this or, or uh, I suppose, regulating this. That is obviously going to be a series of events which is quite, it's quite specific and probably hard to 
carry out. But do you think that something like that is likely to happen in your opinion? Yeah, I guess it's it's hard <laughs> it's hard to even qualitatively make predictions about uh, Mr. Musk likes to likes to do that and play up the threat and whatnot. So he likes to be very provocative. We all, of course, love him here at MIT. And he's, there's a nice uh, uh, video of him talking about AI as the greatest existential threat at a talk he gave here at MIT. I don't know. I don't even know that I can say whether it's likely or, or not likely. I don't know if anyone knows exactly. I think, though, what, what I can say is that I think that uh, AI-based weaponry is here to stay. It's going to get that much more, it's going to become that much more prevalent. It's not going to be reversed because for the simple reason that, well, if AI-based weaponry makes one military more effective, then you've got to have it, you've got to develop it. And all the indications are that it will. And, you know, hopefully what's, one thing that's interesting that, I think your question brings up is that we tend to focus, we meaning, let's say, the public in general, society, tends to focus on kind of a given threat. And I guess it comes up from time to time. But, you know, we were, I'm growing up, I think you're younger than I probably, I'm 50. We're growing up, we, we were always worried about nuclear war through high school and whatnot. I mean, Cold War and the end of the Soviet Union and, and whatnot didn't really abate that concern completely, particularly the possibility of terrorists getting nuclear weapons. But now we kind of have put that to the side and focus on threats of AI, among other things. So the human mind tends to focus on one major thing at a time. And we have to train ourselves. I mean, this is part of Bayesian too, is to train ourselves not to get focused on on one particular no definitely and i think you're right and also i think naturally we just have this kind of romanticized kind of idea of post-apocalyptic worlds or kind of dystopias and i think that is most clearly demonstrated our love for like post-apocalyptic films where there's always some end of the world event happening one way or another and i think in our real lives we're constantly fixating on what that could be and i think right now understandably people are fixating that th fear on AI and I suppose we've <laughs> we've been on it for a while since the invention of Terminator so <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right exactly that has probably Skynet and all that haven't helped but who knows yeah maybe in 20 years we might be more worried about something else and thinking this is going to be the end of the world but it, it seems okay for now I guess like as long as we're yeah we're still here we're still breathing even though there are nuclear even though there are bombs in the world that could just destroy us all and wipe us all out so um we're, we're still doing okay <laughs> So my last question that I really wanted to put to you, you've stated, well, at least I believe you've stated it. Hopefully it's not Francis Bacon. <laughs> you stated that AI will have the power to diagnose better than human doctors or build houses better than human construction workers and run the economy better than human economists. That was you, was it? Did you say that? That was me, yes. I mean, that was you. That's awesome. Vision. <laughs> How far away do you think we are from AI potentially running our economies? Okay, and, and I want to make clear that this was not really a prediction, but a vision of something to think about. So in a certain sense, building houses is very different from making predictions on the economy, because I'll know that the economy, economists tend to be quantitative, but the economy doesn't seem to want to uh, be responsive to their quantitative model. 
Um, so um, in a certain sense, it's interesting that you bring out that that one of the three examples, because I think that's the one that's even less certain. And we talked earlier on about, I mean, there are things that we have to keep reminding ourselves that AI is really just a very complex method. The economy is, from all indications, not a mathematical formula. There are numbers and there are, there's currency and there are all kinds of mathematical aspects to it, but it's not at the end of the day mathematical. And so I guess I would uh, go out on a limb and say that I think that AI will be able to do a better job than economists in a number of things, but it will never replace human beings. And well, it shouldn't, let's say that. I don't know if it will. It shouldn't replace human inputs, human desires, human, let's say, differences in understanding what you know different people strive for different views of what's important and so I don't think AI will will be able to replace those and so in a sense I guess it won't ever be able to or shouldn't we shouldn't let it actually take over the economy but it may take the job of a lot of economists who punch numbers it's uh like you said the reason why I picked that one is because it seems the most visionary out of the others the diagnosis better than human doctors I think I've already seen studies where that's that's already happening for example like even through voice and AI can diagnose whether or not someone might have schizophrenia and then other illnesses which it can pick up on and 3D printing has already done quite a good job it seems of creating houses so that one was the one that really resonated with me where I thought like wow something as big as the economy which is arguably one of if not the biggest kind of components we have in our society for AI to be like in control of that that's a real symbol that like we really believe in this and not only that but it has proven itself to be a tool which truly is one of the strongest or one of our greatest creations potentially but no you're definitely definitely right it shouldn't in any way replace humans but i think it could definitely uh, be very influential in the decisions we make yeah no that's it's been very insightful yeah yeah no i and and absolutely you're you're that's very good you're right to pick that out i think what I've seen, again, just as a layperson, I'm definitely not an economist, although I did take a few classes here when I was a student. But what I see is that often economists try to justify policies that they're advocates of because they're advocates, not because the numbers lead to them to uh, prefer those policies. The numbers might inform them. But often I see economists using the numbers as justifications for something that they think should be pursued, like policy, economic policy that should be pursued independent of the numbers in a sense. So it's kind of what comes first and tries to, they try to reverse the chicken versus the egg, let's say, in order to, um, in order to justify a policy that they want to pursue. And so that's why I think that in, in a sense, maybe the way to answer your question, which is right, definitely the right question is, well, if we get to a point as human beings, we see the running of the of the economy to machines. That will be a strong indication that we've given up a lot of our humanity and even understanding of what our humanity is, which probably is the same thing as giving it up. I got to say, it's uh, exciting times we live in, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing where uh, AI takes us. But I also have to say that I'm incredibly jealous of all the students you're going to teach on this course because uh, I could talk about this for hours. But um. Really, that's, those are all my questions for now. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on this show. If our listeners do want to learn more about you or follow you on social media or even just um, maybe visit your website if you have one, how can our listeners stay in touch and stay in contact with you? Absolutely. Well, it's very 
pretty easy because I'm an academic. So I just have a website here at MIT. You can just do a search and you can, can find me and contact me. And otherwise, you can find out all about the course towards the end of October. And by the way, uh, you're welcome to come up yourself. Absolutely. The course is open. So if you can make it on October 24th and 25th, we'd love to have you. If, if you can just pop by and sit in one of our sessions it sounds good at MIT I would I would absolutely love to if I if I find myself in that corner of the world then uh, yeah I'll, I'll take you up on that offer <laughs> absolutely thank you very much Sam it was a great pleasure and really enjoyed the conversation no worries the pleasure's all mine thank you so much That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find all our shows on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and on sociable.co. If you're a Spotify user, please follow us on there. If you're an iTunes user, you can find us on iTunes. And please, I'd love you forever unconditionally if you give us five stars. I'll even give you a shout out on one of our next episodes. And you can also find our podcast on a variety of other websites. You can check that out on our page at sociable.co. Not only will you find all our episodes on the homepage, but also just below the podcast box, you can also find the little box where you enter your name and email and you'll stay up to date with all our shows. And we'll also send you some great articles from the website. So stay tuned for with that. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening and have a great day.